uh, seeing them in action in Czech Republic. And, uh, you know, to see Dale is uh, the corporate world, you know, uh, working in that context. And you go to Czech and he's in this small apartment made by communists 40 years ago. <laughs> and he's uh, serving uh, a small church. And in that culture and context, really he has no... Uh, no standing, no no defined role or or high view by the culture, but in God's eyes and in Christ Church eyes, uh, they're doing beautiful work. And to see Dale and Joan to faithfully serve and uh, drive all over the place to teach English and uh, minister the gospel, it's a great sight to see. And to have them come back and to uh, uh, you know. Get back into the workplace. Get back into the corporate world. But all the more steadfast in serving Christ. It's really a good example for the church. So thank God for you and your wife, brother. And uh, look forward to just continual ministry, uh, serving together uh, for the building up of Christ Church here. So our wives and a lot of our women are at the women's retreat. So uh, for all the fathers out there, I feel your pain. Uh, we're... We're a band of brothers. We stand alone together. And uh, I prayed for you late Friday night and early Saturday morning. And uh, I thank God that uh, we're here this morning together. I wrote on my Facebook, Facebook account that if I'm late, go ahead and start without me. And I was half joking and half serious. Um, it is quite, you know, mother's work is literally never done. And so... A lot of work is waiting for her mom to get home <laughs> this afternoon for her to finish because I couldn't finish it. And um, I was reflecting this morning how different it is now than it was um, maybe a few months ago or over a year ago when we had this before and um, how the gospel is really changing, changing my heart, helping me to grow in my understanding, helping me to grow as a Christian, as a husband, as a father. You know, I think before, we would have these things where women would go away and I would take care of the kids. I, I, when my wife was pregnant with Eleanor, she had uh, gestational diabetes, so the doctor put her on, put her on bed rest, complete bed rest, uh, so that Eleanor would not be born early. So from the sixth or seventh month on, her job was to rest. <laughs> my job uh, was to care for her and care for our three kids. And it was two months of uh, boot camp, two months of hell week, uh, Groundhog Day every day. You know, and caring for kids is kind of like mindless work, but it's so difficult, so challenging. And yet, I remember what I, I was serving with joy, you know, doing dishes, preparing meals, and giving kids baths, all that with joy. But in my heart, I was calculating. In my heart, I was kind of like saying, well, Seren, I hope you notice all that I'm doing for the family. And so when the Lakers season rolls around, <laughs> you know, you'll allow me to watch without any kind of guilt. Or if I want to go out and play hoops with the guys, you'll allow me to go with freedom. And even now, like, there is a part of me where I want to calculate. Like, if there was a Game 7 tonight, I would have leveraged the last two and a half days of service into being able to watch the game 
without talking, <laughs> without any uh, fellowship. And a lot of you get lost in Lakers or even go out with the guys and play. Um, and that's how non-gospel-centered relationships work. It's all ex- exchange, demerit, merit, I do for you and you, you do for me. And it's leveraging each other based on our works. But with growing an understanding of the gospel, that's not how I relate to my wife. That's not how I'm supposed to. That's not how I'm supposed to relate to others. I don't leverage my works given to her and use that to manipulate and control her, influence her, to pay, pay that debt back to me. In a lot of the gospel, our, my heart response, I'm growing where it's, this is what God has done for me. A wretched sinner bound for hell, slave in iniquity. God has given me grace upon grace. God has given me uh, infinite mercy. And because of that grace I received in Christ, my joyful response is to love others. And it begins with my family. It begins with my wife and my children. So I love them, not to control them, not to get something back, but I love them because Christ first loved me. And my hope and prayer is in a lot of the gospel that when Serene comes back, I don't treat her like she owed me something. She owes me something. Like she's obligated to me in some way. Uh, because of what I have done for her, our family this weekend. But we come back and we're on, we're, we come back equal standing and I hope that she doesn't feel any kind of guilt, any kind of obligation towards me because of her legalism. But we stand as sinners saved by the gospel and we love one another and we serve one another out of joy because of Christ not because of each other's works. So I share that with you, the shepherd of hearts of the fathers uh, in this room, that you would not use this weekend to kind of manipulate or control your wife in any way or your, or, or, or your family, but really motivated by the gospel, you would have considered it a joy to serve because we really, we're, we're serving our, our wives and our children, but we're serving Christ. We're worshiping Him. We're um, doing this as an act of faith to glorify Him. So um, I that that would be your heart as well. And we would um, really be a joy and encouragement. And we would minister to our wives as they return from the women's retreat. So our study this morning, um, I had thought about continuing our study in Second Timothy for about five minutes. And then I realized I'll have to be caring for four kids um, this weekend. So I... Uh, I thought about what else I can study, um, more familiar texts that I can um, st- preach this morning. And my wife was studying Luke 7, and she was sharing with me her story, or her sermon and her insights and her study. And we were weeping together. We were so blessed by this passage that uh, it was in my heart. It was in my heart this week, and uh, I asked myself, what's in my heart to share with the congregation on Sunday? And this is passage on Luke 7. It's amazing how the Bible teaches us, how God has chosen to reveal himself to the word of God. He has chosen himself to reveal himself through didactic truths, through propositional statements, direct statements. But he has also chosen to reveal himself through indirect examples, uh, through stories, through um, narratives, through people's lives, biographical sketches. Through didactical statements, we learn about the truth of God, but through these narratives, we get a glimpse, we get to experience, we get to really taste 
the beauty of Christ, the, the awesomeness, the, 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 the delight. We have to experience just the wonder of God, the wonder of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, and in His love given to us and unworthy sinners. And, and that's, for me, it moves my heart. I mean, I, for me, I don't know about you guys, but like imperatives really don't move my heart. They don't like, yeah, you know, don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie. Man, that's so like, you know, no, I mean, I, I obey them, I, I submit to them, but my heart's, my heart is moved by these stories, uh, of these, um, people that God has given faith to who respond in so many beautiful ways, uh, some example is a royal official in John 4, where he modeled faith in God's word. He, our Lord was in Canaan and Galilee. His son was sick. And this man comes to Christ and asks Christ. He begged him, Lord, would you come and heal my son? My son, my dear son, my love is close to death. Jesus said to him, you may go. Your son will live. And this royal official's response was to take Jesus' word uh, at face value. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And we see a, a model of true faith. He doesn't ask for any proofs, any demonstrations, or any evidences. He doesn't ask for any additional promises. Jesus says, your son will live. And the royal official takes him at his word. I believe you. I believe you are the Holy One from God. You are God incarnate. And your word is truth. So when Jesus spoke those words, immediately he went home to greet his son. What a powerful uh, example of genuine faith. Uh, where when we struggle with so much with our faith, we see that example and moves our hearts. Um, in, in Mark chapter 9, there is that another father whose son was possessed by a demon and is you know, you know, parents, you, you have your children who are sick or ill. You understand a little bit the helpless feeling you get when your child is ill. And he goes to Christ and he says, will you help me? And he has, uh, the, this demon has often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill my son. If he can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He cried out to Jesus. Uh, Jesus replied, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. What an honest, honest confession. Lord, I believe you. But Lord, I need your help. My faith is so weak and fragile. My faith is so small. My faith is as of a baby Christian. I need you to help me in my unbelief because I struggle with my faith. And Jesus responded, your boy is healed. That weak, that mustard faith is enough to move Christ's heart to answer this father's prayer. The tax collector in Luke 18, Pastor Dan read this passage this morning. We sang of it. What a beautiful picture of genuine repentance. Uh, what a beautiful picture of genuine faith activating in a person's life where he goes to the Father and he doesn't boast about himself like the Pharisee. He doesn't pray about himself. He doesn't flaunt his works righteousness. He's at the back row beating his chest and he says, forgive me a sinner. And all he could do is uh, throw himself at the mercy of Christ. He can't make any demands. And Jesus says, this man, this tax collector, 
This traitor to the nation of Israel went away justified and not that religious Pharisee who was filled with his own, own boast. He was so proud of his own works. He is not justified. God's condemnation stands on him, rests on him. And yet this man is justified before the Lord. So for me, so for many of you, these narratives move our hearts. Uh, these narratives teach us so much of, of what what we are to aspire to as Christians. And here is another narrative for us this morning. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And we have a wonderful picture here. Uh, the Bible presents us with a model worshiper. Really an exemplary worshiper of Christ. And we want to know she is not like our wives. She is not a Proverbs 31 woman. She is not a Titus 2 woman by, by any means. She's not a godly woman, a virtuous woman. She is that Proverbs 5 woman. She is that immoral woman. She is a woman from the city who is loose, who is immodest, and who is most likely a prostitute. But this woman, God gave grace to her where she, God gave her faith to believe in Christ. And she acted upon that faith. That faith was powerful. That faith was dynamic and active. And her faith was not just verbal. It was not just in her her intellect. It was demonstrated. She lived it out. This sinful woman. She's not named. She models for us uh, true worship. And Luke, uh, this good doctor, contrasts the false worship of Simon the Pharisee with the true worship of this sinful woman. Incredible contrast. The Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus publicly to his home for dinner and gives him his own seat and publicly says Jesus is the, the center of this, this banquet. And yet, in his heart, Jesus is not the center. There is no worship of Christ. In his heart, we'll find out later, there is uh, judgment and hypocrisy and pride. Yet this woman, she's not even invited to this party. She is coming uninvited. She's crashing this party and does something that is so controversial that it causes a stir among all those who are gathered there. But this woman was Christ-centered. This woman is worshiping Christ. Look at the context. Verse 36, this Pharisee invited our Lord to his home, a large gathering, puts him at the at his own seat, the head of the table, and verse 37, behold, that word is there, look what's happening, look what happened, a woman of the city, she was a sinner, she was depraved, wicked, known to be uh, immoral, loose woman, most likely a prostitute, comes to this dinner. And and the, the good doctor gives us a frame-by-frame depiction of what she did when she entered the room. I'm sure all eyes were fixed on her. What is she doing at a place? It's a, a Pharisee's home. Right? A Pharisee's home. All the people there have big hats and flowing robes. Everybody's there, and they're acting in a certain formal way. 
This woman comes and by her dress, she doesn't belong here. Right? Despite how she dressed, she's standing out as a spotlight figuratively on her because she is so out of place despite who she is and how she is dressed. The first picture uh, Luke describes for us is that she is standing uh, behind Jesus at his feet. So, ancient Near East, where they would sit, they were sitting like sofas, couches, they'd be lying on their side, eating with one hand, and their feet would be exposed. This woman is standing behind Jesus. And, and Luke says she is crying, she is weeping. You look at her eyes, and the Greek word is klyo, and it means to sob. It means to wail aloud. There is a whole other Greek word that denotes silent crying. Uh, just, just crying in a, in a, a quieter way. This word denotes a loud wailing, a bursting forth of, 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 of weeping and mo- uh, uh, wailing and crying. Everyone's fixated on her. And she's not, I mean, alligator tears. She is wailing and her tears are flowing from her eyes. And they're landing at the feet of Christ. She's literally crying on Jesus' feet. Now, we find out later that it is customary for, for guests at a dinner for their feet to be washed. They're wearing sandals. Their feet are dirty. The way they're seated. You have your feet washed. Our Lord's feet weren't washed. His feet are dirty. There was no water. I mean, I'm a little bit of conjecture here, but there was no water for her to use. She cries on the Lord's feet. And uh, she begins to uh, wash His feet with her hands. Right. Here she begins to show her love for her Savior. We see a demonstration of her humility, Demonstration of her penitence by pouring forth a flood of tears and washing the Lord's feet in this manner. And then she uses her hair as a rag. Now, 1 Corinthians uh, 11.15 says, The glory of a woman is in her hair. Right? The glory of a woman is in her hair. And so for a woman having long flowing hair, that's her glory. That's her honor. That's her dignity. That's what she prizes. She uses her hair to dry the Lord's feet. Uses it as a common rag to wash the Lord's feet. We see really the heart of John the Baptist. When 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 Christ went to the Baptist night to be baptized, John said, Lord, I am not worthy to tie your shoelaces. In ancient Near East culture, the dirtiest part of a human body was the feet. Right? And so the feet were considered, you're sitting in an ancient Near East hall, even today, and you cross your legs, you show the sole of your feet to anyone else. That's an offense. You're offending someone by showing the bottom of your feet to anyone else. That's how, uh, how it was considered offensive and dirty. And John the Baptist considered it, he's not worthy to wash or to tie his shoelaces. This woman has the same heart. She washes, dries the Lord's 
feet with her own hair. And um, inside for us, I mean, is, do we consider, is that our view of our best? You know, what we are most boastful of, what we're most proud of, what we, what we prize? Is that beneath the feet of Jesus? Whatever we glory in, do we consider that underneath uh, the Lord's feet? Um, Pastor Dan was hearing a sermon and he told me in Isaiah 6, the sermon that he heard, the preacher said, you know, why the tongue? Why did Isaiah confess, I have unclean lips? And the, the preacher said, it's because that was Isaiah's best. That was his righteousness. That was what he was most proud of. Because in Isaiah 5, he used his tongue to proclaim God's truth. He was a prophet of God, a mouthpiece of God. He used his tongue to declare God's glory and condemn God's people. But when he came face to face with the thrice holy God, he saw sin in his most righteous place. He saw sin in his most righteous place. I, I would say, that's how amazing grace is. Um, you don't need salvific grace to see sin in sin. <laughs> you know, common grace will allow people to see sin in their sins. People in the world, they'll, they'll admit their sins. It's so patently clear. But to see sin in your righteousness, only God's grace can accomplish that. This woman uh, unbound her hair. She used her hair to wipe the Lord's feet. Her hair that she prized was nothing compared to ministering and worshiping Christ. And then it goes further. Then she kissed his feet. Kissed his feet. The Greek is a perfect tense, or excuse me, imperfect tense. It means it's a repeated or a continual action. She didn't kiss his feet once, but she repeatedly kissed his feet. And it's uh, worthy to note that the Greek word for worship, proskuneo, literally means to kiss the feet of a king. That is the appropriate response for a commoner to come before the king and you proskuneo him, you kiss his feet. That's what worship is. What is worship? When we come together to praise and worship, and we live our lives, Romans 12, 1, as a spiritual act of worship. What is our heart? Our heart is we're kissing the feet of the king. Because he is so worthy. He is so loving, so gracious to us. We repeatedly kiss his feet. Albert Barnes said, the kiss, the kiss is here was an emblem of love and affection. In this manner, she testified her love for the Lord Jesus. At the same time, her humility and sense of sin by kissing his feet. There could be few expressions of penitence more deep and tender than were these. A sense of all her sins rushed over her mind. Her heart burst at the remembrance of them and at the presence of the pure Redeemer with deep sorrow. She humbled herself and sought forgiveness. She showed her love for him by a kiss of affection. Her humility by bathing his feet. Her veneration by breaking a costly box, perhaps procured by a guilty life, and anointing his feet. 
In this way, we should all come embracing Him as the love redeemer, humbled at His feet and offering all we have, all that we have gained in lives of sin in our professions, by merchandise or in toil while we are sinner offerings all to His service. Thus shall we show the sincerity of our repentance and thus shall we hear His gracious voice pronounce our sins forgiven. She had brought a alabaster jar of ointment or perfume and she anointed Jesus' feet. Um, so it was uh, uh, intentional. She came prepared. It wasn't a haphazard worship. She made her way to this house with this intent, with this purpose. And I want you to know this is a true story. This is not a made-up story. It's not a fable or a, or a myth. But this actually, it was a woman. A sinful woman who did this because of her love for the Lord as an act of worship and praise to Christ. What an amazing story. But there's a more amazing part of this story. You know, there's the heat that hardens, heat that melts butter hardens clay. Grace opens eyes. And it's amazing how grace closes eyes. The blindness of people is amazing. The hardness of the human heart. I mean, it's just, you know, unbelievable. It's, it's just, It's incomprehensible how the wholeness, the, the, the callousness of the human heart. Listen to the internal monologue of this Pharisee. I mean, just consider his hypocrisy. He has, he has a, a calloused heart. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, now this is an internal monologue, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In his heart, she is uh, judging Christ. He is judging Christ. He is condemning Christ. He's not a prophet. I knew the fraud. I knew. I came in. I invited him to trap him, to stumble him. And he failed my test. Because if he were a prophet, he would know. And just like us, he would hold on to ritual purity. He would value holiness and righteousness. He would value these things and would not allow the sinful woman to touch him. So he is judging Christ. He is judging her. And at the same time, he's vindicating himself. Right? That's what religion, legalism, moralism does. You condemn others, you condemn God, and you vindicate yourself. You say, oh, I would not, I would not, I would never do that. I am far too righteous and holy and, and godly to allow this to happen. I mean, just incredible. I mean, just amazing. I mean, so sad. So Jesus... I mean, he knows everything. 
he's omniscient, he, verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Again, what hypocrisy. In his heart, he's condemning him, but outwardly, you know, he profanes a sense of respect towards Jesus. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled a larger debt. Jesus said to him, verse 43, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. And there's so much here, but I just want to highlight a few, few truths. Here we see what is motivating her, what has motivated her to do this. She's not, she has not done this to earn salvation, to find favor from Christ and God. She came here to do this publicly because she saw her debt. She saw the greatness of her sins. The same time she saw the purity, the holiness, grace, mercy, and love of Christ and understood the gospel message. And she received forgiveness from Christ. That is why she did this. This is why she didn't go to the Pharisee to wash his feet. She didn't go to the Pharisee to uh, kiss his feet and, and wipe his feet with her hair because religion has no power to forgive sins. All the laws, all the New Testament has no power to uh, forgive us of our sins. And the law exposes our sins. The law convicts us of our sins and our lack of righteousness. So we never hear God's law and say, you know, yes, I'm a sinner. I wanna... The law has no power. has no, effect, no medicinal, therapeutic authority to cure us. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. That's why she went to Him to receive what no one else and nothing else could provide for her. And so this is why she went to Jesus, valued Him above all, above self, above her own glory, and demonstrated her love and faith in Him by doing this beautiful thing. Now, where are we in this story? Where are we? We read a narrative and we always want to identify ourselves with the hero of the story. But the cold, brutal truth is we are much more like the Pharisee than we are like the simple woman. We are much more like inviting Jesus and we outwardly give Him our, our seats and we say the right things 
and we act in a right way. But in our hearts, uh, there's sin of commission um, where we judge God, we judge others, and we vindicate ourselves. Our whole internal monologue is about vindicating ourselves. Our tendency is to justify ourselves and, and rationalize and make excuses and, and, and defend ourselves before God's love, grace, and mercy. And outwardly, we are much more like the Pharisee in that what is missing from our worship of Christ? What is missing? Verse 45 and 46. Can Jesus say this to us? You gave me no kiss. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You did all the formal things right. But personally... There was no proskuneo, there was no affection, there was no zeal, there was no passion for me. There was no love for me. There was no sacrifice, there was no delight, there was no cherishing. There was no lavishing, prizing me above self, over yourself. In this way, we are so um, much like the Pharisee than like this sinful woman. Now how is your personal walk with Christ? How is your proskuneo? How is your spiritual act of worship? How is your prayer life? How is your Sunday morning worship? Is it like the Pharisee where you have all your I's dotted, T's crossed, everything's in place, but personally, it's just formal, ritual, right? Legalistic, or is it like this sinful woman? Where is this heart affection? And you're pouring out, and you don't care what people think. You're, you're you're lost in God's amazing grace. You're so amazed at the great debt that was canceled by His death that your sole focus is to show and demonstrate your love for Him. Ah. Uh. How can we uh, have this kind of worship? Um, we will not. There's no way you can manufacture this on your own, on my own. It cannot be produced by man, religion, or the law. You don't respond. I'm gonna obey the law, and I'm gonna force myself to cry. I'm going to make myself kiss his feet. I'm going to make myself out of duty, out of obligation, worship Christ. You do that, then, you know, you miss the whole, that's like, you miss the whole point. That's back to being the Pharisee and giving him uh, your own seat. The source, as Jesus taught us, is understand the gospel. Understand the depth of our sins. Really, it's about perception. Christ's forgiveness that's offered to the sinful woman and to the Pharisee is the same. There is no like level of sinfulness. All are dead in trespass. We're all, no one is righteous, not even one. No one seeks after God. We're all enemies of God in the same sense, but it's our perception of that debt. 
Some of us are, are, are deceived. We're blind because of our, our, our righteousness, our pedigree, our intellect, our abilities deceive us. And we think our debt is small. We think we have offended God in a limited way. Therefore, His mercy and grace and love is, is trivialized, is marginalized, it's, it's limited. Not because objectively it is, but because of our perception of our offense. But when we rightly understand the gospel, we see our sins as they truly are. We truly see the great debt, hopeless, impossible to pay back debt that we had against God. And through the gospel, we see what Jesus did. We see what it, what, why he had to die on the cross, such a cruel death, to forgive us of our sins. And then we see John 3 and Romans 8, Romans 5, why God sent his son. He sent his son because of his love, because of his love for us. I quoted this um, a few weeks ago. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, while I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew Him to be my Father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against Him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I beat my breast that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so, and so sought my good. I want to ask you um, a few questions. How do you, uh, how would you describe your worship? Is it more like the sinful woman? Or is it much more like this Pharisee. You know, the letter to seven churches in Revelation uh, gives us so much insight about what Christ values in the church, what his desires are, what, is, what he esteems and what he prizes in, the, in, the, in Christ's church. And in church at Ephesus, he commends them for so many things. Their diligence, their hard work, their doctrinal, theological discernment. And yet he holds against them one thing. He says, I, I hold this against you. And when, when Jesus says that, you know, you've got to listen, right? When, when Jesus says to us, man, you know, I love you, but I hate this one thing about you. Now I hold it against you. It's time to take to heart what he's saying. And what is it that Christ held against this church? In spite of all their good works, all their suffering, all their fidelity to theology, he said, you have forsaken your first love. Right? Your first love. And that first love, that description, points to this heart love. Affection, passion, enthusiasms, a heart engagement and worship of Christ. 
How is your uh, worship of Christ in terms of your first love? Is Christ um, is Christ old? Are you getting tired of Christ? Are you getting tired of the gospel? Are you getting tired of oh grace and mercy? Man, I'm just I'm tired of these things. They don't really uh, stir my heart. I want I want something else. I want some more like deeper truths. I want more important truths. I want to get to the heart of Christianity. When this is the heart of Christianity. This is the most important thing. This is the truth of first importance. Jesus, gospel, and God's grace. We we never uh, graduate from these things. How is your heart worship? First love towards Christ. Do you see that if there is a forsaking of your first love, there's a direct correlation with your your lack of affection for Christ, lack of prizing Him and kissing His feet, a direct correlation to how you see your sinfulness. Right? The inverse relationship, right? or a direct relationship, you see in your life a great first love for Christ. You're affected by Jesus. Right? You're affected by His grace. Then you see your sins rightly. You see yourself as a great sinner. That God has forgiven you of great sins. But if there is a lack of this prizing of Christ, it means you're uh, deceived by your own righteousness, puffed up by your knowledge, you're led astray by your own abilities. And you have, look at the height from which you have fallen. You don't see your sins as you ought. You have a low view of sin. We pray that God will grant you grace. If this woman here on her knees uh, kissing the Lord's feet is the mature Christian, is, is at the height. It's not like, okay, I hope she will grow now, you know. Okay, she's had her, you know, time and now she'll mature and grow in her in her walk. You know, the highest act, we were saved to worship. The purpose of our salvation is worship. Worship is eternal. Evangelism, edifica- edification is temporal, only on the earth. Worship is eternal. We'll worship in a greater measure in heaven, ever greater measure in heaven. This is not the low point. This is the high high point that which we are to grow in as Christians. May we, by God's grace, grow by becoming all the more by prizing Christ, loving Him, responding to His grace by heartfelt worship and affection to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, Lord, we wonder to ourselves, I wonder what 
my internal monologue would be if I was in that room many years ago and I saw um, what this wonderful woman had, had done to you. I saw how she worshipped you and adored you. I know all of us, apart from your grace and apart from faith in Christ, we will be murmuring the same thing. What is she doing? She's, she doesn't belong here. What is she doing? Is holy and inappropriate. We will be condemning you, Lord. We will be speaking against you for allowing this to happen. But it's only by grace, only by your mercy that we do see the beauty of this act. We see how, how beautiful this act is and how it's a model for us and how we are to worship you. How our hearts ought to be before you. Lord, we cannot on our own worship you as you are worthy of our worship. We depend upon you. We depend on the gospel. We believe. We ask for you. You to help us in our unbelief so that our manner of life will be clear before the world. That what person we worship and venerate, we honor, that we use our best and my glory to wash his feet is Jesus. That he is our highest treasure, highest love, the greatest uh, uh, prize in our lives. It is Jesus. May that be clearly evident in how we pray, how we study the word, how we fellowship, how we conduct business, how we raise our children, how we live our lives in this world. May it be clear that it is one of worship because of our heart attitude to you, our Lord, Master, Savior, and King. We thank you. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray.